0: Welcome back to GEMS with Genesis Amara's Camp. With me today is Dr. Gina Cox. And here's a little bit about Dr. Gina. She is an organizational psychologist and executive coach. G- Dr. Gina advises executives on building and leading inclusive workplace cultures that work for all employees, not just a lucky few. Dr. Gina is active in the Society of Industrial and Organizational Psychology and serves on advisory boards at the University of South Florida and the University of Tampa. She contributes to national publications, including Harvard Business Review, and holds a PhD in Industrial and Organizational Psychology. And today, we're going to learn more about the leadership stuff that. Dr. Gina does on the forefront as well as behind the scenes, and dive a bit into diversity and inclusion because we all know that whenever we are diverse and and inclusive, it makes the world a better place. And without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Gina.
1: Oh, Genesis is such a pleasure to be here to meet you, and I'm looking forward to uh, interacting with you as an, as a surrogate for your uh, for your actual audience. I wish I could meet everybody in your audience. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Gina. So I want to know about your personal side. And then we're going to get into the professional side. And the reason why I asked this question is because I want to know who was Dr. Gina before the PhD and before you started doing this incredible work. And where did you get your inspiration? Yeah, well,
1: Dr. Gina was Gina, because even now I say you can't call me doctor unless you're going to pay me a big check. Other than that, you better call me Gina. Uh, So you should call me Gina. Um, But I I do think that Gina has always been Gina, you know, I am, I, um, I, my story is very typical. You know, my parents grew up on a small island in the Caribbean called Barbados, but they did not meet there. They met in England. They were part of that generation that the Jamaicans call the Windrush Generation. And we'll just take that title and use it because we know that that means that they went to the United Kingdom in the 1950s. So somewhere along the line, they met each other. I was born there. And then they did another thing that a lot of immigrant parents did in the Caribbean uh, when they went to from the Caribbean to other places, which is that they sent their beloved Gina to, to live with her grandparents back in the islands and so I grew up in the Caribbean and so I have had an idyllic uh, childhood. I have to say growing up in the Caribbean, getting up in the morning, opening the windows and doors, never closing them again until sunset, running around in the grass playing with the bugs and and the dogs and the pets and, and feeling very, very free. So Gina is an island girl who is still, after all these years of living in the United States, really excited when I when I go home because I call the Caribbean home with no watch on my hand and I just like breathe out I can feel the difference uh the real Gina is somebody who just likes to be relaxed and just take life as it comes and be a real good island girl um just You know, just really sort of enjoying the everything that life has to offer. That's a little different than Dr. Gina, where it's all about process and time and getting things done and so on. And so I try to balance those two.
0: Nice. I like that, Gina. And whenever you went back home to live with your grandparents in Barbados, how different was that versus if you would have stayed and lived with your actual parents? Did you feel a Sense of resentment, or did you feel like going to your grandparents actually helped put you on the map in a sense?
1: Yeah, I, I I don't I never felt any resentment. What I did feel was like I was the luckiest girl in the world, and I still feel that way because my parents are great, or my grandparents, oh my gosh. I lucked out in the grandparent department. My grandfather, I idolized him, I followed him everywhere he went, whatever you know, if he was doing projects around the house, I just remember that I just followed him around. He would say, hand me the hammer, hand me the nails, whatever. I, I just thought he hung the moon. But then my grandmother was like a few steps even above that, because if you're looking for the kind of grandmother who has ne- has only ever told you how fantastic you are, or at least not even told you, but just shown that to you in the way she interacts with you and taught you everything she knew and told you all these stories and made you feel as if you were in the safest possible place, Well, those were my grandparents. So no resentment, just the advantage of having had these grandparents. My grandmother was the kind of person, she never weighed anything. She, when she was cooking a, dish, a dash of this, a smudging smid- smid- of that, and the thing came out really good. And then in the garden, she could look at a plant and say, I know what that is. And this is good for that. And this is good for this. And she would whip things up when people were sick. I have been blessed. I love
0: that. (laughs) And you know why I love that is because sometimes kids who go to live with their grandparents ask, why did my parents, you know, send me to live with my grandparents? Why didn't they want to raise me and etc so you see things from two different vantage points and focal points and I love how you how you looked at it and you put a spin on it because your grandparents sound like amazing rock stars and superstars and you came out amazing and so the work that you are doing now what led you to get into this space did you know you wanted to go here or was it something that you fell into that you just loved?
1: Yeah. So another related story, uh, Genesis, is that when I was a teenager, my father sent me a book on developmental psychology. Don't know why he did. And I remember this book, it had a yellow cover. I was really fascinated by this. And I don't know why, of all the books I read as a child, it was one that really resonated with me. So I got attracted to psychology, but I didn't know anything about industrial and organizational psychology until I was a sophomore, maybe in college. And I met a woman, a Black woman. Who had done her PhD at the University of Michigan Institute for Social Research. She was a rock star and she said to me, Gina, you should go to graduate school. And I was like, okay, so I think she, I thought she meant you know clinical. I don't know. She started explaining, she said, Oh, there's so many options in psychology. Let me tell you about the industrial, organizational, social psychology, and quantitative methods. And the rest is history. Gayleen Peralt is her name, was her name, she's now deceased, but she introduced me to the many facets of psychology that I did not know that exist, uh, existed, and she also made it very clear to me that I was graduate school material, and I just, you know, really built my confidence um, about a, a field about which I knew nothing, and then I sort of ran with it. So I stumbled upon it in the sense that there were people around me who shared simple ideas that sometimes that's all a child needs is a kernel, and then they can make it grow into a big field of porn.
0: So she planted that seed inside of you, and then the seed took took root. And here you are with your doctorate in industrial and organizational psychology. And can you explain what exactly that is for the listeners and the viewers so they could connect the dots?
1: Oh, absolutely. So when most people think of psychology, they think of, do you love your mother and a couch and this, and that's, True, that is an aspect of psychology, but psychology is a multifaceted profession. And so when you think about that kind of psychology, you're thinking about therapy, counseling for an individual, a group, a family, and it's sort of a medical model. The psychologist is intending to help fix a challenge, a problem that a person uh, or group experiences. Industrial psychologists and organizational psychologists, we spend the first year doing very similar things to clinical psychologists in understanding the human. Uh, the, the the human brain the human body and so on but we are really focused on the dynamics that happen when you take two humans and put them together in a business environment an industrial and organizational environment where the dynamics uh become completely different than when you're dealing with an individual in a social situation you got the power dynamics communication dynamics you have uh, influence you have skills dynamics you have the external social norms that are brought into the organization you have culture you have diverse you diversity and inclusion, you have leadership, you have like every aspect of the human experience in the organizational setting. That's what we focus on. Um, and I focus primarily on things that have to do with leadership, employee engagement and satisfaction, um, and sort of helping individuals be their best, even as they're doing the best possible job. But there are industrial and organizational psychologists who do human factors work, for example, and design cockpits for for military jets or commercial jets. Trying to make sure that the physical interface between the human brain and the human capability and this thing that we are operating is optimized, so that we there's less we reduce the brain the brain challenge, make it easier for us to do it, and then we can be great pilots or great astronauts or what have you. That's sort of like an extreme example of things I/O psychologists do, and then there's a whole bunch of stuff uh, in between.
0: I'm glad you gave the extreme example, and the reason why I say that is because I spent 15 years in corporate America, 12 in the oil and gas and energy industry, and now I want to know, based on what you do, how do you really weave in inclusion and diversity, because I don't think that employers were really looking at it holistically until really the Black Lives Matter happened. Before, I think they were looking at it merely to check a box, but then whenever the Black Lives Matter movement happened, they really started to dive deeper in there, as if we didn't know there was already a problem in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Genesis. Um, So I've worked in corporate America, as I have said, for a very, very long time, and in that entire period of time, a lot of the work that I our work is very data-based so when we say we're helping a leader with an organizational challenge the first thing we want is data to help us we hypothesize about what the challenges are we look for data to either support or disavow what we are speculating and depending on what we find then we're able to advise leaders in a very targeted kind of way that's how we operate so for all of those years i've always been looking at data where there's sort of been a stratum in there that has to do with diversity and inclusion because whether you're talking about culture, communication, power, skills, development, or what have you, talent mobility, one of the things that I know from my work is that over all of those years, we would often see that there's a difference in the way that people of color, women versus men, people who um, have disabilities, people who might identify as LGBTQ+, or whatever ways that humans vary we would often find that there were differences in how they would react to organizational characteristics and to leaders. So we, so I know for a fact that when you think about diversity and inclusion, I've always thought about it in that one way, that humans vary because humans vary, leaders need to understand human variation. And when they understand human variation, they can be effective leaders for all. That's how I have always thought about it. But it is true that it is only since George Floyd was killed that, they, that some business leaders recognized that there are differences in the experiences that people have in their companies. And so they started hearing stories that would make them go, I can't believe this is happening in the company that I'm leading. And I, I, I am not um, cynical when people say that to me, nor am I angry. I am disappointed because I say effective leaders must know what is happening in their companies. So if at the very least, they now know more than they knew before, I'm pleased about that. But then of course, the big question is what do you do? And so a lot of what I do now, what do you do to help with this problem? And so nowadays, leaders are more inclined to come to me in a more direct way and say point blank, you know what, we have a problem. We don't know where to start. And I always say, have no fear. Black people, brown people, yellow people, red people, purple people, if they exist, whatever humans are, we all need the same thing. You don't have to come up with new ways of leadership. You just need to insist that all your managers lead all of your employees in an equitable fashion. And of course there are nuances and details and stuff, but no, you don't need to lead me differently than you lead any other person. You might be done seeing me for the first time in my totality. But you just need to be an effective leader for all. So those are the kinds of things that are truly new uh, ways that we're talking about these issues. And I tell leaders, no excuses. I don't let leaders off the hook.
0: And I'm glad that you hold those leaders accountable because in my heart of hearts, um, I've seen leaders, they have been brought, you know, to the forefront. We have voiced certain concerns, but if it is not conducive to their overall pocketbook or um, having their shareholders hold them accountable, then they are not going to look at it until you know money is on the line or maybe a lawsuit.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, in and of itself, the most offensive thing that a leader can do. Because the minute a leader makes it clear through their actions that they put profit above everything else, it lets you know that their values are not human-centered. Because an enterprise can't make money, or another way of putting it, an enterprise could make more money if the humans within
0: the enterprise were all treated well and all of their talents were saying
1: a few. that's why I like to talk about the select few. So it's kind of self-defeating when leaders do not recognize that it is silly of them to either hire people and then treat some of them poorly or not hire certain people and miss on their miss their talents altogether.
0: I love that, because it is so, so true. And we need to realize that when we all come together collectively, and we think about the ways that we all have common interests, then we are bridging the gap versus looking at the ways that we are different. Because at the end of the day, we're all employees working towards the same goal at the same company organization. And we have to stop thinking as other people on a higher totem pole. At the end of the day, if you were to get cut or someone else were to get cut or I was to get cut, we would all bleed red. But the only thing that makes us different is our outward appearance. And we can't help who we were born to and where we were born. But what we can do is have these courageous conversations and bring it to the forefront. And let's all have a seat at the table. There's enough room for all of us, but let people be seen as well as heard. And, lots, and let's stop making it as a check the box and see what can we do to push the needle forward and have a holistic approach. Absolutely.
1: You're absolutely right. I was speaking to someone yesterday who said, you know, I feel so inadequate. I feel like if I don't know how to be an effective leader uh, for um, people of color. And I said, whoever taught you to think this way didn't do you a favor you don't need to do anything different but I I I honor and accept that what you are saying is that you recognize that for whatever reason you have been taught that people of color are so different that we need a special kind of leadership And, and I understand that this is not your fault somebody taught you this that so here's an insider secret we aren't different we aren't different We just need the same thing, which is treat us, um, treat us, meaning Gina and anybody else you encounter just like another human being. Talk to me, say, ask your employee, how can I help you today? And listen to what they say. You'll probably get the answer.
0: That's very good advice, Gina. And as we begin to wind down for the sake of time, I want to play a game and get to know more about Gina. So are you ready? I am. So- the Fra- favorite Bajan food?
1: Oh, absolutely. Cuckoo and Flying Fish. And even if I didn't like it, I would have to say that just for the brand.
0: <laughs> okay. So no saltfish and ackee.
1: No, that would be Jamaica.
0: Okay. Good. Okay. So um, Cuckoo and Flying Fish. That's right. Dream car. You know, I'm not big on cars,
1: but I really like Audis. And so I'm just going to go with like the latest RS, R8. I don't even know what S8 or what the latest, whatever the sportiest Audi is. I like
0: it. Favorite color. You know, I'm going to
1: go with red. And I said, I paused for a second because I never used to like to wear red. And I've kind of discovered it in the last year as we're on Zoom more often. And I'm like, you know, it pops.
0: I'm not hiding. Red. Red. Okay. Favorite vacation spot?
1: Oh, so the islands. I'm just going to say the Caribbean islands. Any one of them can do at any point. But my I, my fantasy vacation place that I haven't yet been to is the Scand- is Scandinavia. I really, really want to go to Norway, and I just haven't done it yet.
0: So you have it on your bucket list, yeah. and yeah. you should plan it. Put it on your vision board so that way you could do it. <laughs> I love
1: Here's Genesis, and she's always coaching. <laughs> so
0: five, if you could have any superpower, what would it be and why?
1: I think this, my superpower would be the ability to just connect. Two, any two people that I would just pick at random, you know, and if I and if I could pick those people, I would probably pick them because they were very, very different from one another. They, it, you know, they have different experiences. They come from different places or whatever. I'd plot them together, and we'd all have dinner, and I would eavesdrop as the two of them just ate and talked and laughed and giggled and explored and had fun. And I and it would just it would give me a lot of fun to sort of watch that happen. And it would be like a grand. Um, it would be like one atom in my grand experiment, where I believe that that's all it really takes to solve all of these social problems that we have in the world. I know it's very sort of naive and simplistic sounding, but every day when I wake up and I see that kids in Afghanistan are being killed by a bomb or that this group in another country is doing something to hurt or that somebody's shooting somebody in a school, I truly cannot comprehend how humans can be ever so... um, dehumanized by another human that they can't find a way to find some common ground. I don't, I don't, my my brain can't process that. So I like to actually really believe that two humans together will eventually stop all of this craziness that we see.
0: That is a beautiful superpower and a wild card one because no one has ever said that on the show. really? Huh. I want to think that,
1: I know that most people think it though. I think sometimes people think they can't change the world. And, and, you know, again, I'm not naive. I'm not, you know, Pollyanna about any of this. I've lived too long for that. But, but I think in my personal life, in my interaction, the people I meet, the humans I meet, I try to model the idea that I don't care who you are, you're going to get the same thing from me in terms of respect and, and just interest level that I would give to Barack Obama, who would certainly be the one by Michelle, Michelle Obama. She edges out Barack. I would just love to have that conversation. So you know, it's just human experiences, and we're all pretty much um, the same. But I, I, I think that we can all make a do a little our little part.
0: I like that. And six favorite dessert.
1: <laughs> that one is really easy. My favorite dessert is tres leches. Tres leches three milks. And it's a, it's a very common dessert in the Cuban community, but not just in the Cuban community. Cause so for anyone who's listening, who might be from Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, or any other place where they eat to leches, just know that I am not ignoring you. I just don't know all of the places where they eat it. But all I can tell you is when you take regular milk, evaporated milk, condensed milk, make a cake, pour some more gooey stuff on top of that, put some icing and then put like that red cherry on the top and give it to me. I cannot say no, I have to have it.
0: (laughs) Now you're making me want to go and buy one at, um, what is it? La Michicana because we have one up um, not too far.
1: But it has to be from an authentic place because if you buy one of the ones that's manufactured in a factory somewhere, it's okay, you can get by. But man, it is decadent. It's probably bad for you. It's all of those things, but so good.
0: And then, because I want to be um, mindful of the time, so I'm probably just going to yeah. end it at question number seven versus going all the way to 10. So You
1: can go to 10. I want you to go to 10.
0: Okay, <laughs> so Seven are you a Rihanna fan?
1: I am a Rihanna fan, but I haven't always been a Rihanna fan because I grew up in a generation where when I first heard Rihanna and watched her uh, do her thing, she was a lot more sort of brazen than a typical Caribbean woman. I wasn't raised like Rihanna and and I'm older than she. And and anybody, any Caribbean woman in my age group, and I'm not going to tell you my age, but older than Rihanna knows
0: exactly what I'm talking about. So at first I was like, I'm still Gina, but over time, what um, she's trying to accomplish, she has also done a female this is on a back. 100 percent. Riri (laughs) eight favorite flower.
1: Hmm that's a really hard one but I do actually have a favorite flower and it's an iris and an iris became my favorite flower well first of all an iris bloom if you get the authentic sort of purpley color iris it kind of looks like an orchid and it looks delicate, the bloom, and it has a characteristic where it only lasts for a single day. So if you don't see the iris bloom today, you're not going to catch the iris, the iris bloom. So when you have irises, you need to pay attention to what they're doing when they're blooming, right, if you want to see it. But what really made the iris my favorite flower? And, and then when it's not blooming, it's just a tall blade of grass. It's almost like how sugar cane has the long... Um, I don't know if they, what they're called, actually. I'm going to call it a leaf, but it's not. that's not what it's called. But these long, grass-like things. And so when the iris is not blooming, all you see is the grassy thing, right? But here's the really interesting thing about an iris. As delicate as it looks and as much as the bloom lasts one day, when you put the iris into the ground, they are pretty much indestructible. You can ignore them, fail to do the things you should do as a good plant mom, and they are so sturdy. So now when people say, what's my favorite flower, I can tell them that what I like about the iris is what I like about the women that I know. And you know what, I said women, but it could be men. But I think the women that I have had in my life, who you had better not underestimate any one of those women. If you do, it would be at your peril because they're just gonna, tomorrow they'll be blooming again, just when you thought they were done.
0: Ah, I like that. And I like that you brought the substance behind why you like the iris, because it really put things in context. And we learned something new about the iris flower, especially I did. Ed, nine, Dr. Gina, favorite movie?
1: Kirkland. My favorite movie is a slightly joint called Kirkland. And the reason I love Kirkland is well, first of all, Spike Lee was one of the first black uh, directors, producers, executive producers, and as you know, and when he started his career in the 1980s, people looked at him and dismissed him. In fact, he's still, in my opinion, underestimated to this day, but Kirkland, he was in this, this movie was all about this family in, let's say, Brooklyn, but Brooklyn. And it was at all the extended, the neighbors, the neighborhood. And it seemed so familiar to me. And because if you're from the Caribbean, you probably know somebody from Brooklyn. And then on top of that was this musical track and the music of Brooklyn, where you have um, soul and neo-soul rhythms. You have Afro-Caribbean rhythms because they they have, you know, the characters were... um, Uh, Americans, Caribbean descent, people from Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico, New York, you know, it's like New York, was it New Rican? Whatever, you know, I'm not from New York. Um, And all of that was in a big pot in this movie. And so everything about that was like, oh my God, oh my God, this is the best movie, Kirkland.
0: I had to go. (laughs) Go watch that one when you were uh, describing it it kind of reminded me of the movie that i recently saw in the heights um where all the afro latinas and stuff but i haven't seen crooklyn so i'm gonna write that down and go watch it
1: yeah but let me just say crooklyn has the whole range of emotions so while there is a lot of joy in in crooklyn there it is it is the 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 struggle is also very well represented so it's it's kind of movie you want to be in a headspace where you just observe everything and listen.
0: Thank you for putting that disclaimer. I'm glad you say that because I want to make sure I don't, I don't watch it and I'm not in a good headspace to really absorb all the underlying themes, yes. and etc. And 10, the final question, this is where you can ask me any question you would like to know.
1: So Um, there, There are a couple of different questions I would ask, but I think the question that I'm going to ask you is, how did you develop such a discerning capability as an interviewer? How did you develop that skill?
0: Oh, okay. I guess it came whenever I was an administrative assistant in the oil and gas sector. And I had to work my way up the corporate ladder, not once, but twice. When I first got into oil and gas, I started as an imaging clerk and I, you know, I knew that that was my job, but I wanted more. So I started to network with people internally throughout the company. And it was having that professional experience at such a young age gave me the confidence that I needed to where I said, oh, you know what? I could just ask people questions because I want to know what is it that you do? How do you do what you do? And that's all a part of interviewing because you're just having an open conversation with someone that has intrigued you or piqued your interest. And I think I take that experience, those experiences and I apply it to what I'm doing now. And even though I didn't want to start over twice in my career, it was necessary because it gave me the blueprint of what I needed. And hindsight 2020, looking back at how I came up in the oil and gas industry as a way of being a co-op in 2009 and working my way up and then hitting that management role, then leaving to go to a Fortune 500 company and start all the way over as an administrative assistant, worked up the ladder again and ended there as a trade regulations and compliance coordinator. I was still intrigued and wanting to know more, asking more and being unapologetically me because I said they're either going to respond or not.
1: I know. Perfect. Well, I'm really glad to ask that question because I hope your listeners have heard how thoughtful and purposeful you articulated how you got here. And and for people of your generation, because again, you're younger than I am, I, I'm, I'm 100% sure about that, even without evidence, that. I I tell younger people all the time, you've got to own your career. There's nobody owes you any favors. Nobody's going to pave the way for you. Nobody's going to, in fact, no one might even tell you what the options are. And so you have the ace in the hole. If you recognize that you have got to be the one that's inquisitive, curious, look around the corner to meet people, ask questions. Don't be afraid to start at the bottom, work your way to whatever you want to work your way to definitely don't let somebody else define it. So I am so glad I asked that question because you got to share a story that I know is going to be beneficial to somebody in who's listening to, to this conversation. And that's fantastic. So thank you.
0: My pleasure. And Dr. Gina, aka Gina, thank you so much for being on GEMS today. Please tell the listeners where they could connect with you. And also all of this information will definitely be in the show notes.
1: Well, uh, you're, the easiest way to find me is on LinkedIn. I know people tell you you must direct people to your website, and I get that. And you can do that, too. Uh, my website is feelshuman.com because I'm all about helping employees to feel the, the build workplaces that feel good for all employees, so feelshuman.com. But you can track me down on LinkedIn. I love engaging on LinkedIn as well. However you track me down, with any questions that you have about the work I do or how I do it or why I do it, I am always happy to engage.
0: And there you have it, listeners and viewers. You just heard Dr. Gina. She prefers that you call her Gina unless you're writing her a big check with a whole lot of zeros, (laughs) cocks on gems. And we had a vast conversation. So make sure you tap in with um, Dr. Gina and you sit and bask in all the knowledge that she has shared today. And until we chat next time, peace, love and lots of blessings. Remember, you are a masterpiece. You were created for greatness, and don't ever let somebody tell you what you can't do. Rise above those limitations and break down those barriers.